So uh, this afternoon I didn't come in at all for the meditation. I was working on a tech issue that, that came up. At first it seemed to be a very minor thing, but uh, it turned out I had inadvertently done a hard factory reset on our entire phone system and there's no backup and it's all been erased. So uh, our phone number doesn't exist anymore, um, at least here. And so uh, I was working on that all afternoon and it, I'm at least it was me who did it and not somebody else. I can only be irritated with myself, and <laughs> not with somebody else. But uh, internet is working now, but uh, yeah, Brian's been working on that. So if he doesn't, uh, he's been talking with our tech guy, Neil, in the uh, server room. So if he doesn't come for the reading, it's uh, they're probably still working on resolving some of these issues. But just to make an announcement that uh, our general phones possibly won't be working for a number of days. Uh, anyway, that's dovetails well to, I'm gonna read about the suffering of samsara. And um, normally during these winter retreats, I would, uh, we would stick with just Theravada teachings, but uh, because this book was one of, was very integral in my, my own path to ordination, this book plus the Ajahn Chah book, Still Forest Pool. This is Liberation in the Palm of Your Hand, Pabanka Rinpoche. And it's really probably the only Tibetan text, Tibetan originated text that I return to over and over again when I need inspiration or some of the teachings in it really do match very well with the teachings of the Krupa Ajans. But there might just be, uh, um, ask forgiveness ahead of time, some uh, names of teachers and uh, different Mahayana teachers you may not have heard of if you're uh, only um, learned in the Theravada. But uh, I do think his really systematic teachings about, specifically about descriptions of the drawbacks of birth, aging, sickness, and death are uh, very uh, poignant and worth reflecting on. So uh, I will read from this today and we'll uh, again uh, ask forgiveness if uh, if you're not into um, the Tibetan or the Mahayana stuff, and we do normally stick with Theravada, but I do think uh, the flavor of this, a lot of it is does have kind of a Theravada-like flavor, and uh, he talks about things like the Four Noble Truths. And this is a teaching that uh, was given in, it's a 24 chapters, and it was a 24-day teaching given in the 1920s in Tibet, uh, one of the most famous teachings ever given in Tibet, and each day is a chapter, and it was uh, his students took notes, which were edited over a period of 30 years, and then it was translated, brilliantly translated, by a man named Eric Kelsing Gyatso, and translated into English in the 1980s, and it's a very good translation, and I know how hard translation is, and you can't separate a teaching from, if it's translated, you, you're gonna get some of the energy of the translator, but I think, uh, this, uh, my feeling about this is it's a very, very good translation. So this is uh, from day 14. Developing thoughts of yearning for liberation. Thinking about the general sufferings of samsara and thinking about its specific sufferings. As I've already said, when you cultivate the part of the lamb rim, and so the lamb rim is just a, it's a, it's, the teachings of the Buddha, but taken in a very codified format. Like this is this part, these are teachings about taking refuge. These are teachings about death contemplation. These are teachings about 
the drawbacks of sangsara and so on. So it's a it's Tibetan codification of the teachings. When you cultivate the part of the lamb rim shared with a small scope and uphold the ethics of abandoning the 10 non-virtues, you will get a rebirth in the upper realms and be temporarily free from the sufferings of the lower realms, but this alone is insufficient. Suppose a criminal has been condemned to die in one month. People go and see a man of influence for him, and a few days later he no longer receives other minor forms of punishment, being flogged, burnt with hot wax, and so forth. But he is still not released from the ultimate execution. Similarly, one will not be free of samsara forever. As it says in Engaging in Deeds of Bodhisattvas, you could go again and again to upper realms and continue to enjoy so much bliss. When you die, you fall to the suffering of the lower realms where the suffering is unbearable and lasting. In other words, you are certain to go to the lower realms when you run out of the right throwing, throwing kamma. If you want to stop the flow of suffering for good, you must be freed from samsara for good. In this medium scope section of the Lam Rim, you must develop thoughts of yearning for liberation. There are two ways of developing these, by thinking about the nature of the four truths or by thinking about the 12 links. That's the Four Noble Truths or Paticca Samuppada. Here, liberation means being released from bondage. Suppose you were freed from the ropes binding you, you would then be liberated from them. We're similarly bound by kama and delusions to the aggregates with which we are afflicted. We are bound in the following way. Owing to kama and delusions, the aggregates are formed. In terms of the realm, there are three realms in which this happens. That is the desire realm, the form realm, and the formless realm. In terms of migration, there are five or six types of migration in which this happens. And in terms of birth, there are four modes of rebirth, that is rebirth from a womb, an egg, etc. That is the nature of this bondage, and liberation means being freed from it. And that teaching there matches exactly the Pali Canon, the five or six types of migration. That's the uh, hell beings, hungry ghosts, uh, animals, humans, and then devas. But then it's also six if you split apart the asuras, the demigods. So it's five or six realms of migration. People generally assume samsara to mean taking on bodies from the peak of existence down to the hell without respite. People who have not studied think samsara means circling between temporary residences or circling between the six types of migration. This may be correct usage of the word, but it is not the real samsara. And the peak of existence is the... Uh, absorption of the neither perception nor non-perception is considered the pinnacle of samsara. Some scholars claim that samsara consists of such things as being conceived again and again. However, the seventh Dalai Lama's claim is the best, that samsara is one's continuum of rebirth into the contaminated, afflicted aggregates. One is therefore liberated from samsara when one has broken the continuity of being reincarnated and being brought into existence under the power of kama and delusion. Prisoners must develop the wish to be free of their prison before they can escape from it. They will not develop this wish unless they consider the drawbacks of being in prison. If you likewise do not want to be free of samsara, you will not make any effort to be liberated. And when you develop the wish to be liberated, as Arya Deva's 400 verses says, the wise are just as afraid of high rebirth as they are of the hells. In other words, you must be weary of samsara. You must think about samsara's sufferings. 
There are said to be two ways of doing this, by thinking about the four truths or the 12 links. I shall now discuss it as per the first of these. When the Bhagavan Buddha first taught at Varanasi and first turned the wheel of Dhamma for his five earliest disciples, he said, monks, this is the noble truth of suffering. This is the noble truth of the source of suffering. This is the noble truth of the cessation of suffering. This is the noble truth of the path. He discussed the four truths three times each, making 12 versions in all. This was his turning of the wheel of Dhamma on the four truths. They are called truths because they are true according to how Aryas perceive things. In terms of causes and effects, the truth of the source of suffering should be discussed first. However, the four truths here do not follow this order, for the truth of suffering was discussed first. The point of doing this was as follows. Suffering was taught first because you should be moved to renounce it. If you are not so moved, you will not want to abandon its causes. When you first want to achieve some separation from these causes, you will work hard at the path, the cause for this achievement. So the four truths were discussed in this order so as to reflect the disciples' practice. Thus, these four are the fundamental things that determine how people seeking liberation should modify their behavior. Uh, in a teaching called The Sublime Continuum of the Great Vehicle on knowing about the need to destroy the cause of suffering, this teaching was given. The illness is to be diagnosed, its cause is to be abandoned, health is to be achieved, and the medicine is to be relied on. Likewise, suffering, its cause, cessation, and path are to be diagnosed, abandoned, reached, and relied on. When we are sick, we diagnose the cause of the illness and rely on a med medicine to remedy this cause. The great fifth Dalai Lama gave a water analogy. When you sleep on a comfortable piece of ground and your underside gets wet, you want to first find out from where the water is coming and then stop it. You must want to be without the cause of suffering if you are to work hard at the means to be free of the disease of suffering. To develop this wish, you must investigate the causes of suffering. And for this to happen, you must understand how you are tormented by suffering. Uh, Sonkapa has said, if one does not think hard about the true drawbacks of suffering, one will not develop any yearning for liberation. If one does not think of the source, the gateway to samsara, one cannot know proper cutting of the root of samsara. Be moved to re renounce this existence, weary of it, and cherish the knowledge of what binds one to samsara. Each of the four truths has four features. For the truth of suffering, they are impermanence, suffering, emptiness, and selflessness. For the source of suffering, cause, source, contributory cause, and intense production. For the truth of cessation, they are cessation, peace, splendor, and definite outcome. And for the path, they are path, correctness, accomplishing, and definite deliverance. Contaminated, afflicted aggregates have three types of feeling, happiness, suffering, and equanimity. Although you do recognize the contaminated feeling of suffering for what it is, you do not realize that the other two are also suffering. Once a tantric practitioner told his women, someone like me is all set to go to the pure lands of knowledge bearers the moment you do wrong. He later fell sick and his women asked him when he was about to die, Master of Tantra, 
You are all set to go to the pure lands of the knowledge bearers. Did we do wrong? He replied, it's only because I am powerless to keep living. If I were not, instead of going to these pure lands, I'd rather stay with you. So he's, uh, he, he's quite down on uh, like this uh, tantric, these tantric practices. And uh, that's why one of the reasons I, I appreciate this text. Like the story, like one story, we think there's happiness in samsara. We do not know this is merely attachment and that its nature is suffering. When we come to know that it is the truth of the origin, the very cause of suffering, we will want to abandon it. There are two origins, originating kama and originating delusions. The truth of cessation is the thing resulting from an absence of suffering. The truth of the path is the means to achieve the truth of cessation. In order to achieve the truth of cessation, one must put the truth of the path into practice. In order to understand suffering, one should think about the eight, the six, and the three kinds of suffering. Human suffering comes under the eight kinds. The three sufferings include the suffering that pervades all conditioned phenomena. Thinking about the general sufferings of samsara, one, the bane of uncertainty. You may sometimes be reborn in the upper realms, but as long as you have taken rebirth in samsara, you have not transcended suffering at all because samsaric happiness is totally untrustworthy. Let us take the example of our past and future rebirths. Our enemies, friends, parents, and so forth change places. Once a family's old father always used to eat fish from the pool behind the house. He died and was reborn as a fish in the pool. The mother was attached to the house, so she was reborn as the family's dog. The son's enemy had been killed for raping the son's wife. Because the enemy was so attached to her, he was reborn as her son. The son caught his father, the fish, and killed it. While he ate its meat, the dog, his mother, ate the fish bones, and so was beaten by her son. His own little son, his enemy, was sitting on his knee. Sariputta saw this and said, He eats his father's flesh and hits his mother. The enemy he killed sits on his knee. A wife gnaws at her husband's bones. Sangsara can be such a farce. Also, it's been said, fathers, sons, mothers, wives, persons can change. Enemies become friends and change back again. After death, those in samsara have no shred of certainty. In other words, although we are sure our enemies, friends, etc. will always be that way, we cannot really be so certain. Friends in the early part of our lives can become our enemies, and later on in our lives, our enemies can become our friends. And this holds for wealth and poverty, Someone who was rich yesterday could become a beggar today because he was robbed by enemies and so on. These are obvious. Things can change from moment to moment. The bane of being dissatisfied. Butterflies are destroyed by their attraction to visual form, deer to sound, bees to smell, and elephants to physical sensations. In the same way, samsaric happiness is like drinking salt water. No matter how much of it you obtain, it does not satisfy. Suppose a man has but a single coin. He will think, when will I get 10 coins? When he gets 10, he then wonders when he will get 100. If he ever does, he'll wonder when he will get 1,000. No matter how many he gets, he will not be satisfied. As one sutta says, O king, if a man were to receive all celestial pleasures, there are. All noble human pleasures, there are. 
it would not be enough. He would seek even more. Let us take the example of celestial and human happiness. King Mabvata ruled over the four continents and the celestial regions, yet he was still dissatisfied. Eventually his merit fell out, uh, his merit ran out. He fell to this continent of Jambudipa and breathed his last. Desires do not satisfy, there could be no greater fault than this. If you ruled over one land, you would think, if only I ruled over two, you would not be satisfied no matter how many you ruled. No matter how much wealth you get, you still wonder if you can get more, and you are prepared to wear yourself out to achieve this. If you lack contentment, no matter how much wealth or how many possessions you have acquired, you will be no different from a beggar. Once in India, Surata the beggar found a priceless jewel and said he must give it to another beggar. He gave it to King Pasenadi, saying, O king, you lack contentment, and so are the poorest. If you are content, you may not have any possessions, but you are still rich. Always be content. If you know contentment, though you have no property, you have the purest wealth. And it's been said, in the gatehouse of the contented, a rich man dozes by the door. People with desire cannot experience this. In other words, if you are not content, your dissatisfaction is boundless. This is why discontent and dissatisfaction are the greatest faults. The bane of being conceived and born over and over again. If you counted all your mothers with juniper berry-sized balls of earth, the earth would not be enough. Instead of ridding yourself of sorrow, you have time and again in hell drunk so much boiling molten brass, even the water in the oceans would not equal it. That is, you have already been born in hell and drunk more molten brass than there is water in the great oceans. And if you do not break the continuity of your rebirths in samsara, you will have to drink even more. When you were dogs and pigs, the amount of all the filth you ate would be much greater than Meru, the king of mountains. You have already been dogs and pigs and have eaten more filth than Mount Meru. And if you do not break away from samsara, you will have to eat even more. So many tears have you shed in samsara's realms when separated from your dearest friends that the teardrops from your eyes would overflow the basins of the oceans. You have already been separated from parents, children, brothers, and so on, and shed more tears than the oceans. And if you do not break away from samsara, you will cry still more. Since people fight among themselves, the pile of all your lopped off heads would be so high, it would exceed the world of Brahma. You have already been involved in fighting, and the pile of your heads cut off by enemies would be higher than even Mount Meru. And if you do not break the continuity of your rebirths into samsara, you can be sure even more in the future will be cut off. When you were earthworms, you were so hungry, all the manure and earth you ate would be more than would fill the great oceans. In other words, we have been born as muddy earthworms and have already eaten so much filthy earth and manure that the quantity would not fit into the great ocean basins. But if we do not free ourselves from samsara, we will have to eat even more. Each of you has drunk more milk than the four oceans, and yet, as you are still ordinary, a being following samsara, you will be drinking even more. In other words, you have already continuously received bodies in samsara and drunk more milk at your mother's breasts than the four great oceans. Yet if you cannot stop being reborn into samsara, you will have to drink even more. 
if, according to the above contemplations, you have so much suffering and undergo such terrors every time when reborn in the lower realms after you die, what can you say of even the greater sufferings and terrors you will have, for you are certain to re-experience such births, deaths, and so on, countless times more? We are afraid whenever we see a scorpion, but if we were to make a pile of the scorpion bodies we have had, the pile would be the size of Mount Meru. Yet we are certain to have even more of such scorpion rebirths, so long as we cannot break the continuity of our rebirths into samsara. The bane of moving from high to low over and over again. From the transmission of the Vinaya, all collections end up running out, the high end up falling, meeting ends in separation, living ends in death. This speaks of the four ends of conditioned phenomena. Collections of wealth and property end up running out, a fall ends our high position, the end of coming together is being separated, and death is the end of a rebirth. No matter what you acquire of Sankara's affluence, not one bit of it will exempt will be exempt from decay or will not end. In Sankara one must hoard a great many things, but do not pin your hopes on them, they will decline. Further, make a great we make a great effort to build a house and amass wealth, but we may well not see them through to completion. Enemies could steal them, or we may die. We lamas and disciples gathered here today are sure to be separated after only a few years' time. As the seventh Dalai Lama said, in but a short while, the high become downtrodden slaves. You may be Indra, to whom the world makes offerings, but still through Kama's power, you will fall to the ground. You may be a universal emperor, but in the cycles of samsara, you'll become a slave. In other words, this is what happens to the high, Brahma, Indra, and, so, and the like. As for the lowly, any worldly gains, status, or good fortune are without essence. As you climb farther and farther up that dead tree called name and fame, it will bend and break, alas, best stay only halfway up. In other words, not only are past and future lives untrustworthy, but so also is this one. There, there are kings who have to stay in prison and so forth. Once, Sangye Gyatso, a regent of Tibet, instituted many reforms in the central government. He was a rich and powerful man and one of the greatest scholars as well. But in the end, he incurred the displeasure of La Zang Khan and was beheaded. His severed head was left for days in the middle of the Trizam Bridge at Toling, and no one dared claim it. His wife and sons had to wander to the ends of the earth as beggars. Then the Lazang Khan himself was later killed as the Zungarian armies invaded. The bane of having no companion. In the beginning, when you were born from your mother's womb, you were born alone. In midlife, when you get sick, for example, only you can experience it. In the end, when you die, you go through death utterly alone, like a hair drawn out of a butter pat. There is no one to help you. When you were born, you were born alone. When you die, you are just as alone. What can your meddlesome friends do if they won't take on another share of suffering? No matter what you obtain of the splendors of, and happiness of samsara, these are untrustworthy, and not one samsaric friend is reliable in the long run. Think on how you experience the sufferings of samsara and how, if you consider how endless it is, that must make you weary of it. So, regardless of whether samsara in general has an end, 
you must employ some means to end your own samsara. If you want to set some limit on your suffering and bring your own samsara to an end, you must, as I've already said, manage to break the continuity of your samsaric's rebirths. Okay, so if that wasn't enough, thinking about samsara's specific sufferings, so that was samsara's sufferings in general, these are samsara's specific sufferings, Thinking about the sufferings of the lower realms, and previous chapters have already talked about this, so all he says here is, you've already thought about the first of these in the, in the previous section, and it would revolt you as alcohol revolts someone with a hangover. Thinking about the sufferings of the upper realms, this is thinking about human suffering, thinking about the sufferings of the demigods or the asuras, and thinking about the sufferings of the gods. And uh, we'll just talk about the sufferings of humans, this is uh, from uh, the chant we do in the morning chanting, uh, Jati Piduka, Jara Piduka, Maranam Piduka, Soka Parideva, Duka Somanasa, Paya Sapiduka, Apiehi Sampayogo Duko, Piehi Vipayogo Duko, so that these eight things is birth is suffering, aging is suffering, death is suffering, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are suffering, association with what with the disliked is suffering, Separation from the liked is suffering. Not getting what one wants is suffering. In brief, the five khandas are suffering. So that's called the eightfold reflection on suffering that we, that we do on a very regular basis. And this is the format that this follows. Is it goes through each of those. <clears throat> okay, not sure if we'll get through this. Thinking about the suffering of birth. If the sufferings of the lower realms are as I described above, you might think, aren't the sufferings of gods and humans small? But when you are born in samsara, even gaining a higher rebirth is nothing but suffering. We have been reborn as humans, but if we ignore the fact that we can derive great benefit through practicing Dhamma, we will suffer as enormously as the rest. Owing to the trauma of being born from a womb, we have completely forgotten about the way we have already undergone the sufferings of birth. If we manage to take a human rebirth again, we must again experience all the sufferings of birth, although we do not remember them now. After you enter the mother's womb, and until you are born in the outside world, you have each of the sufferings associated with both the five stages of development in the womb and the periods when each part of the body develops. First, when your consciousness is placed in the center of your parents' drops of blood and sperm, your body is only like a speck of yogurt, and when your consciousness enters it, the suffering is like being boiled in a giant hell cauldron. When the head and the swellings for the limbs appear, you suffer as if you were being stretched out on the rack. Each limb adds only more suffering. When your mother drinks something hot, when she moves, sleeps, and so on, you suffer as if you were being boiled in a hot spring, carried off by the wind, or crushed under a huge mountain. As Chandragaman's letter to a disciple says, enclosed naked in a most intolerable stench, you live enveloped in pitch blackness. After entering this hellish place, the womb, you must endure great suffering with your body all hunched up. In other words, Imagine you are placed in an iron pot filled with various kinds of filth and the lid is put on. There is no way you could stay in it even for a day, yet you, ha yet you have to stay in your mother's womb in its smelly filth and its black darkness for nine months, ten days. 
You then develop five attitudes concerning the nauseating aspects of the womb's interior that make you want to emerge. Even as you are being, yet even as you are being pushed through the cervix, as the letter to disciple says, you are gradually squeezed as hard as one crushes sesame, then somehow you are born. In other words, the suffering is like having your body squeezed in a vice. When you emerge, your skin is like raw flayed cowhide. And when you're placed on a cushion, no matter how soft, it's like being thrown on a bramble patch. When you feel an outside wind, it's like being penetrated by a sword. When your mother takes you in her arms and carries you, it's like a sparrow being carried off by a hawk. These things terrify you. All your learning from past lives is veiled, and you have absolutely no wisdom at all. You even have to learn from scratch how to eat, sleep, walk, and sit. When you meditate on your rebirth from the womb, it should not be like goggling at someone else at an entertainment. You should meditate to develop insight into how you yourself are certain to have such a birth again and into what it would be like. You should think about the sufferings mentioned in the Sutra for Nanda on entering the womb. I think that's a uh, Mahayana take on, on the teachings given to Venerable Nanda. Some may think that the sufferings of birth do no harm because the experience is over, but until we set a future limit on, on samsara, we must experience the sufferings of birth an infinite number of times. And Papanka Rinpoche told how this would be difficult to endure and so on. The suffering of aging. Age makes a beautiful body ugly. Age takes radiance, age takes strength, age takes happiness. Age humiliates, age kills, and age robs the complexion. In other words, the sufferings of aging are one's handsome body deteriorates, one's strength declines, one's faculties decline, one's enjoyment of objects of the senses declines, one's lifespan declines, and so on. Your sense faculties, wisdom, etc., gradually dim, your body gets bent like a bow, your complexion declines. It is difficult for you to sit down and get up. Your hair whitens. You have many wrinkles. You become as ugly as one already departed. As Milarepa said, one, you will get up like someone tethered to a stake. Two, you will walk as if stalking birds. Three, you will sit like a crumbling clod of earth. When the time comes for you, grandmother, to have all three, the decay of the body, that mirage will depress you. One, outside your skin creases into many wrinkles. Two, inside your flesh and blood thin out so bones protrude. Three, between these you're dull, stupid, deaf, blind, and senile. When the time comes for you, grandmother, to have all three, you will look ugly, wrinkled, and wrathful. All these things are defects of being in samsara. Kadampa Geshe Kamaba said, how good that old age comes bit by bit. It would be impossible to take on if it came on all at once. In other words, if a healthy young man in his prime went to sleep tonight and woke up tomorrow with unclear faculties, with a bent and ancient body, and so on, it would be impossible for him to bear. You must practice Dhamma now, before your faculties, wisdom, and body decline. Later, when the sufferings of old age dominate you and you are about to leave your human body, your physical condition will have changed, your faculties will have declined, and you will not even be able to get up or sit down. How could you practice Dhamma then? 
and there's verses. It's as if the old received initiation water on their heads. Their hair is conch shell white, but not because it's pure of filth. It's been spat on by the Lord of death and has taken on a frosty look. Wrinkles crisscross their foreheads. This is not from baby fat. Time's messengers made these tally marks to count the many years gone from their lives. Drops of mucus dribble from their noses. These do not look like necklaces of pearls. Their youth, their carefree times are glaciers melting in the sun. Their rows of teeth have fallen out, but no replacement teeth await to grow. They have eaten all this life's food, so their cutlery has been confiscated. Their drawn faces in poor color are not because they're wearing monkey masks. Their loan of youth has been called. Now their true colors show. Their heads are nodding, but not because they're sniggering at others. Yama prods them with his club's tip, and they can't help shaking their heads. Their faces look down, bent down toward the road, but they're not searching for lost needles. Their memories and jewels of youth have spilt on the ground, hence the posture. They use all four limbs when they get up, not because they pretend they're cows. Their legs cannot support their bodies, so their hands have to assist. They sit down with a thud, but not because they're furious with a friend. The rope of health and sling of mental happiness are now severed. When they walk, they sway and lurch, but not because they're walking like a lord. They're under a great burden from their age, and the weight has upset their sense of balance. Their hands clutch at things and tremble, but they're not scooping up some gambling winds. They're afraid that Yama will steal everything in their reach. Their eating very little food and drink is not because they're stingy with their meals. The fire in their bellies has declined, so old people fear they may faint. They wear only thin, light clothes, but don't so dress to go out dancing, unless you're uh, the lady in Willets who was searching for a dance partner at 104. They have lost their inner body strength, and even clothes have become a burden. They wheeze and puff for breath, but are not blowing mantras like a llama. The gurgling sound they're making when they breathe foretells the disappearance into thin air. Everything they do isn't just to act the fool. The evil spirit of old age has captured them, and they aren't free to do as they would wish. They forget to do all their work, but not because they're shallow or don't care. Their faculties have declined, dimming their memories and minds. In other words, these wrinkles and white hairs are omens that they will be killed by karma by Kamayama, and there are yet more sufferings, mental anguish from the fear of death, and so on. The suffering of illness starts with a verse. In the dead of winter, great winds and falls of snow rob grass, trees, forest, and shrubs of brilliance. Sickness likewise robs beings of their brilliance, and their bodies, strength, and faculties decline. In other words, you suffer, the nature of your body changes. Your suffering and mental anguish increase and remain high. You no longer want things that delight the senses. You have to experience unpleasant things that you don't want. You suffer mental anguish at the prospect of losing your life and so on. And as it is said, your body loses strength. Your mouth and your nose dry and are constricted. That is, you may be at the prime of life, but if you are bedridden, your body loses its strength, your luster fades and so on. If you require more detail than this, think how each disease torments. Think how you may not even have time to make a will when you come down with a fatal disease. 
Habanka Rinpoche then told how young Prince Siddhartha achieved liberation through his meditations after seeing a sick man, an old man, a dead man, and so on. The suffering of death. It starts with a verse. Time makes for death, leaving and leaving in death. Forever you are separated from dear and pleasant people. They will not come back. There will be no reunion. How like falling leaves or the flow of a river. In other words, you will be separated from beauty and from affluence, from your property, relatives, retinue, and your body. When you actually die, you experience fierce suffering and mental anguish. When it is time for you to die, you cannot prevent it, as the instruction given to a king's sutra tells us. I've already discussed this in the section on remembering death. The suffering of being separated from the beautiful. You will be separated from your teacher, disciples, relatives, friends, parents, and dear ones, the cherished people from whom you cannot bear separation for even the time it takes to drink a bowl of tea, and from your position, power, wealth, possessions, and affluence. Some ordained people even have such sufferings as having to be without their ethics. Such things are not some injustice done to us. They are a sign that we are still within samsara. Suffering of meeting with what we dislike. By what we dislike, we mean what is unpleasant. Meeting with your enemies, and you get beaten or robbed. Meet with diseases or evil spirits, and you undergo tor torments, illness, or insanity. There are an infinite number of sufferings. Meeting with lawsuits, punishment by the king, thieves, and the like. If some unfortunate circumstance arises and you suffer great mental and bodily fatigue while still in the middle of your duties, even this fault is due by nature to your still being in samsara. For example, when a donkey has to carry a heavy load that makes sores on its back, it is by virtue of its own kamma. It's been said, so long as we are born in any of the six types of rebirth, we will suffer from heat, death, and so on. Who is to get sick, gets sick. Who is to die, dies. These are not just random injustices. They are characteristic of and in the nature of samsara. For as long as we remain in samsara, we have not transcended the samsaric state. We must be moved to renounce these things and so abandon rebirth. For that, we must abandon their causes. In other words, if we do not wish to undergo the sufferings of samsara, we must use the means to be liberated from them. Okay, I think that's probably enough. It's uh, pretty intense. Some pretty uh, hard-hitting teachings from Pabanka Rinpoche. Is there any uh, questions or comments? We have about five minutes. I could go on, but uh, it's probably enough. For <laughs> I could have kept reading and just kind of continues along that same vein. So I, I wish that you had read uh, The Sufferings of the Animal you know, realm. That would, have been, that would have been good. We can. Well? We can. <laughs> We can, if that's re if that's a request, then <laughs> there is a whole section on it. It's it's quite good. I mean, not uh, pleasant good, but uh, it's uh, quite good for practice. Um, Ajahn, not to make a second request, but I was also curious about uh, the sufferings of the the Deva realm. Because, oh yeah, just that's... because seeing it, I've never really heard much about. What the sufferings are, other than like when you're coming out of the deva realm, I, 
I heard at some point you feel coldness or something. But but well, that would both, be something. Both the suttas and this text have lots of lots to say about the sufferings of the deva world. So mostly it is when your state runs out uh, that the in this particular text he he claims that the suffering in the mind of a deva that's about to die, the mental anguish that it experiences is sixteen times more than that of a hell being. So pretty extreme <laughs> because of the it knows it's going to lose its state and it doesn't know or it can actually see where it's going to re be reborn as well and sometimes they get reborn in the lower realms as ghosts or, or hell beings and they can actually see where they're going to be reborn and that makes them suffer even more but the suttas also talk about that they talk about the uh, devas that are that die prematurely because they become heedless Became extremely heedless and uh, deva bodies. So in the suttas, there's devas that are corrupted, devas corrupted by fun, and also devas corrupted by uh, oh, what's the other one? Does anybody know this? Devas corrupted by malice. Malice. Devas corrupt. They get jealous. I think they get jealous of the other devas, and that causes them to die. And then the devas corrupted by fun, they're bodies apparently are so much more refined than ours than that they can't miss a single deva meal, at least in the sense sphere deva realm, such as, such as Tavatinksa heaven. If they miss a single meal, they actually die. And these uh, devas corrupted by fun, they become so heedless, in, engrossed in their prancing around in a place called the Nandana Grove, that they forget to eat their meal and they actually die. And they, uh, it's called devas corrupted by fun. So yeah, devas have, uh, they can't, they, they, they become heedless because they're engrossed in such bliss that they don't even care about cultivating virtue or uh, practicing dhamma. So they end up falling from their state. And the suttas do talk about uh, devas that were practitioners of the dhamma before they tend to be reborn as humans. That, that's actually in the suttas. But devas that were reborn in the deva state but weren't actually dhamma practitioners before, they, it's unsure where they might be reborn after their deva merit runs out. Ajahn Kurnadama, you were, a, you, you were privy to some of these teachings before you ordained. And... Yeah, I found them both inspiring and challenging. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I... Um... It's hard because my mental tendency tends to, you know, take some of these things and go towards negativity, you know, rather than being, okay, let's get going. Um, but uh, it got enough of the let's get going to, uh, to get it going. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was practicing in the tradition with, say, Tupton children before, for a couple of years before taking ordination. And, and a lot of these teachings, you know, really had a strong impact, um, you know, for myself, I, I, I ended up having to um, really not let them bring me down. It took, some, took quite a bit of a work not to move into the negativity with them and to uh, really also concentrate on the uplifting qualities of the Dhamma and the, and the potential, you know, and not get lost in the I'm doomed kind of <laughs> uh, teachings uh, like the... Uh, like the one in the Tibetan tradition was at the, I can't even remember now, the great swords or whatever. Uh, 
there's one that's really, you know, the wheel of... Oh, the, uh, uh, it's the, uh, uh, yeah, like the, the razor-tipped wheel of suffering or something. Yeah, yeah. for some reason I'm blanking on that. <laughs> Maybe I've put it out of my mind, but... Uh, but so, yeah, I think that, um, you know, these teachings, the very hardcore ones really need to be uh, used for inspiration. You know, this is the potential, uh, but also um, to realize that, you know, you, you don't want to just kind of dis dismiss them out of irritation or negativity or let them bring you down out of the same quality, but, you know, take them in proper measure enough to keep you going and keep you uh, inspired not to, to, to slack off and, and uh, get complacent. Yeah, like Milarepa telling the old grandmother, you know, you're dumb, stupid, blind, deaf, and senile. <laughs> like, <laughs> but we take it, she probably had faith, to, enough faith to be able to hear those types of things. Yeah, so I think it, yeah, just to sum, it, it kind of takes wisdom to, to, to use these teachings in the proper way. Yeah, and the, the whole point being to develop a yearning to be free of samsara and to uh, develop a sense of wanting to be liberated from suffering. But, uh, like, this is a desirable thing. This is worth, worth striving towards. I mean, keep that as the, as the attitude. The, 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 uh, the, uh, the wheel of sharp weapons. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that was what kind of like, <laughs> okay, I got to... That'll brighten things up a little bit here in my practice. <laughs> okay. Puja at seven.